Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Justine Polevsky, co-founder and CEO of Kindred. Kindred is the trusted home swapping network and harnesses the power of community to allow you to travel more for less. We discuss the opportunity within travel and house swapping, how she and her co-founder Taz came up with this idea, and as well as what makes Kindred quite a unique marketplace where one unit of demand actually then generates one unit of supply. It's quite a different model, I think, than we've experienced on this show when it comes to marketplaces. And I loved hearing Justine's approach to how she's building it. Without further ado, here's Justine. Justine, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Thanks for being here, Mike. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing really great. Looking forward to hearing, obviously, the ins and outs of Kindred. So first of all, just for people that aren't familiar with, what is Kindred? Kindred is a members-only home swapping network that makes it possible for people to live a much more travel-rich lifestyle while paying a small fraction of the cost of what you would have paid if you had stayed in hotels or Airbnbs or similar. That's amazing. So what was kind of the aha moment that led you to founding your company? Yeah, so we really started Kindred to solve a problem that we were very much experiencing ourselves. My co-founder Taz and I were sitting in the pandemic working in remote flexible workplaces for the first time. And like a lot of our peers, we wanted to be able to spend some time elsewhere and really take advantage of that flexibility. We felt kind of burnt out just staring at the same wall at our workstation inside of our homes day in and day out. And we were trying to figure out a way to, to travel more um, and have it not be extremely expensive. So renting, uh, you know, paying nightly rates at a hotel or an Airbnb just really added up, um, especially for longer trips. And it felt wasteful to leave our homes empty while we were kind of overpaying for a place in in Lake Tahoe or New York City or Miami. And really the aha moment was we realized we probably have good friends in most of these cities or even just friends of friends who have really nice homes themselves that are also sitting empty while they're going to uh, spend a week somewhere else to mix things up for themselves. And so we realized, you know, what if we could just coordinate between our trusted networks that we already have and just stay in each other's homes instead of having to each kind of rent our own place and leave our homes empty. So really it was a kind of asset utilization idea that's like, uh, let's collaborate within our communities and together we can unlock a way to travel that's dramatically more affordable for everybody. How did you meet Taz? And was the intention when you met always that you two were going to found a business together? Yeah, so Taz and I have known each other for many years now because we both worked at Open Door together. We knew each other professionally and socially, though we weren't on the same team. And I actually left Open Door after spending about four years there and went to go work at another company called Homebound for a couple of years. Taz was still at Open Door, and the two of us started thinking about wanting to start a company separately. And we both ended up being really interested in this space of the future of living 
and thinking through what people would want out of their living situations now that so much is changing from a future of work perspective. And we actually both kind of went to Eric Wu, who's a kind of mentor of ours, who's the CEO of Open Door, and said, hey, Eric, I'm thinking about this problem space. I'm, I really would like to start a company in this space. What do you think? And he said, Justine, you know Taz, she's thinking about the same area, you should go talk to her. And Taz, you should go talk to Justine. You two would make an incredible founding duo and you guys are both really interested in the same areas. And so Taz and I met and we were already very aligned in terms of the kind of problem space that we wanted to work on. Um, And we got to know each other even better spend a bunch of time, we locked ourselves in a cabin kind of talking about, you know, um, what we wanted and how we worked and our styles and our families and, and really decided that we wanted to work together. And so we decided we wanted to work together and we wanted to start a company in this general space before we ever knew that the, the manifestation of it would, would end up as kindred. We knew that if we just were really crisp on the customer problems we were excited to solve, we would be able to iterate our way to an interesting business. I appreciate you sharing that. So, I mean, what also, even though you and Taz are both you know, very aligned in terms of what were some of the pain points that people were experiencing, what also made you both excited to work with one another on a partnership level? Yeah, so I think that finding the right co-founder is a huge deal. I mean, for me and probably for many people for being able to really take that leap with confidence And what was really important to both of us was making sure that we were really, really values aligned. It's interesting because you want to be really aligned on values and actually be really complementary or different in terms of skill sets. So in some ways, we want to make sure that we are both really, really good people. I wanted to know that Taz, that I respected her. I wanted to know that she respected me. I wanted to know that we were going to be able to disagree and commit, which you know is something that I think that a co-founder issues or drama or disagreements or difficulty is often the, the cause of early startups failing before they even get started. So we wanted to make sure that we would kind of approach leadership in a similar way, that we had a similar vision for the kind of team we wanted to build out. But then simultaneously, we wanted to also understand that we had really different areas of experience and styles so that our pairing would be really additive and that we could more clearly kind of divide and conquer. We kind of went through all of that. We actually wrote out a big partnership charter, we called it, which we still have to this day, (laughs) where we talked out, you know, here's how we're going to resolve issues. And here's, you know, what happens when we disagree on, you know, hire number five. And here are things that we need to deliver to the other to make sure that our partnership stays really strong. It honestly felt like we got married. And we actually also, in a joke, kind of bought rings as well. <laughs> so we have, we have rings to signify our commitment um, to one another. And honestly, it's been like one of the most rewarding like adventures of my life. It's just like the beautiful co-founder relationship, you know, that, that comes when you make a huge commitment to somebody. This is the biggest commitment I've made to somebody in my whole life. I'm not, I'm not married. So this was a big deal. And it's a really kind of beautiful part of this journey. What were kind of some of the first steps that you both took to learn a bit more how perspective, you know, customers, consumers behaved and maybe tackling some of those early pain points? Yeah. So our problem statement was really 
we want to be able to travel more, but it's really expensive or, or inconvenient. And there are a number of ways that people today are trying to solve those problems. And we kind of went through one by one and personally tried out all of those ways <laughs> to see, you know, does this solve the problem? Um, so Taz was working on figuring out how to be a, a digital nomad. So canceling her lease, moving her stuff into storage and just living kind of Airbnb to Airbnb or, or you know, getting a rental somewhere. That was kind of one option that some people were uh, were trying out to be able to be more flexible. What we found with that one was it's pretty inconvenient um, to move all your stuff uh, into storage, you know, give up your rent control. And for a lot of people, psychologically, it's not a, a wonderful kind of long-term solution because I think psychologically, a lot of people want to have a home. You know, they, they just also want to be able to travel more. The other was um, becoming an Airbnb host and putting your home on, you know, a, a vacation rental platform and using that to, using the earnings to finance travel. What we found there was that uh, for us and, and for a lot of our friends when we were doing research, a lot of people didn't want to take on the hassle of becoming a host. The, now there's so much of the supply on these vacation rental platforms is actually professionalized. These are businesses and the customer expectation is that you're staying in a place that doesn't have any socks in the sock drawer, you know, and you're going to get five-star service. And if something is wrong, you're going to complain on the reviews. And a lot of people didn't feel like they wanted to sign up for being a hotel manager of their own home and have to take on that work and be a service provider uh, and felt a little bit intimidated adding their own home where they actually lived onto a vacation rental platform. And then we also looked into a number of other options like, fractional ownership you know do we buy a, a slice of a, of a vacation home or do you you know uh, go buy a, a second home and put that on a vacation rental site when you're not using it I actually came very close to doing that myself I put in a couple offers in a place in Lake Tahoe and was trying to do the math of like how much am I going to have to rent this out to be able to cover my mortgage and it just felt really financially risky like what if the market changes you know I don't want to be on the hook for this huge mortgage and quite a lot of work and so we, we tried out all these different options and, and, and kept feeling that they were um, they were either really expensive or uh, took a lot of work and were kind of like a second job and so they weren't perfect for us and I actually ended up finding a couple who lived full-time in Lake Tahoe, which was kind of where I was trying to be able to spend more time, like many other San Franciscans um, during the pandemic. And I found a couple who also went to Brown, which is where I went to an undergraduate school. And I didn't know them, but we had a lot in common and we, we hopped on a FaceTime call and it kind of felt like we'd known each other because we had so much in common. And I said, you know, do you want to come to San Francisco sometimes? They, they lived full-time in, in Truckee. And they were like, yeah, like we have a lot of friends there. We'd love like a pied-a-terre in the city. And we decided to just do a swap. So I, I stayed in their place for, for about 10 days and they stayed in mine. And I had a beautiful five-bedroom home, you know, with a workstation and a Peloton. And I skied every day before work. And the other funny thing is the woman was the same shoe size as me. So she was like, oh, use my skis, like use my snow boots, no big deal. And I would join my Zoom calls at work and people were like, oh, how much are you paying for your Tahoe rental? And I'm like, I'm literally paying nothing. It felt like a cheat code. And I got home. And there's this really lovely thank you note and a bottle of wine and my plants are watered and my packages have been taken in. And I was like, whoa, 
home swapping. Why are we not all doing this? Um, and, and really started looking into the idea of home swapping, doing a lot of research on the origins. You know, the, the, the Craigslist section um, for home swapping has been around for quite a while. Like, why are we not using it? And there are also some legacy home swap platforms. They're often European. Home swapping has been a bigger deal in, in Europe. And so it started doing a bunch of research and got on all these home swapping websites to try that out as well and realized that they pretty much all kind of take this like kind of classified ad approach. You know, I'm a person here seeking a home in this place. And and so there's not really a, a layer of trust, which I think is really important when you are uh, sharing your primary residence. You want to know that you have some sort of certainty over the quality of experience you're going to get, that if something goes wrong, somebody's going to have your back, and that somebody's not a total stranger. And then they also were, were lacking in terms of uh, convenience, in terms of finding the right match. You could sort of had to blast out to uh, dozens or, or even hundreds of people to, to find the right fit. And so we realized we could do to home swapping sort of what Tinder did to the, the um, or I guess Hinge is a better analog, uh, did to the like newspaper classified ads, which was like, you know, young female seeking male. Like it sort of felt like that was where home swapping was. And, and if we could create a really smooth, trusted and convenient matchmaking experience, we could make this a fantastic and really viable option for people. And we'd be able to deliver a better experience with stays in nicer places at a price point that was just a absolute no-brainer compared to any of these other options that we looked at. Um, and that's what we were really excited about. You know, We love businesses where we can deliver a better experience that's far cheaper than the status quo. That's amazing. So after you had this experience of home swapping with that Tahoe family and they came to San Francisco and you went to Tahoe and you know, that was also maybe part of the aha moment when you're thinking about cheaper ways to travel. Why don't we turn our attention to home swapping? And you go down this rabbit hole of like the Craigslist section of home swapping and and realizing that there's no trust layer since it's more of like a classified advertisement type of thing, which looks, you know, kind of sketchy at times, right? And so what did you first then you and Taz do to what was like the next kind of step to build this, taking a more maybe community approach than there was previously and a qualification approach, right, to enter that community, to develop that trust layer. But what were kind of the first steps that you did there to see, to maybe test your hypothesis that home swapping could be, you know, like an avenue that is there, but really hasn't been, hasn't reached its its full potential? Yeah, So we did a bunch of interviews, customer interviews, um, and really also just started with our friends, like many entrepreneurs do. Um, You start with the folks who are closest to you. And so we started pitching this to our friends and saying, would you, would you join? You know, who would you trust? Who would you want to swap homes with? And figuring out kind of where people's trust boundaries lived. You know, would you share homes with a friend of a friend, somebody who's a a friend of yours on Facebook? Would you actually prefer to draw the lines with people who've worked at a same company that you've worked at or uh, who share in your profession or who have gone to the same school um, and started building some hypotheses around um, where these trust groups kind of lied and then started uh, essentially just inviting people to apply. And we're, we're both very scrappy. We were able to put together a, a very scrappy zero-code MVP using, you know, we made a little ready mag 
landing page. Highly recommend ReadyMag um, for no code, kind of very quick landing pages. Popped in, you know, a type form, connected the type form to an Airtable, and and started sending it to people and iterating on messaging and seeing who joined. And one of the things that we found was when we said swap homes. There were some people that were interested, and then there were other people who said, hmm, I don't know, that's a little scary. But when we said, hey, you worked at Bain, swap homes with this Bain pod, other people who worked at Bain, the Bain person was like, oh, great, I love people who worked at Bain. They don't feel like strangers. We have something in common. And so we started realizing that there were some angles that really changed how home swapping felt and taking it from that stranger category into a kindred spirit somebody who felt sort of like your counterpart in a different city or a different part of the world who you just haven't had the chance to meet yet. And those were the really magical moments. So really, we just started inviting people who we knew and then growing through referrals. Let them uh, use their discretion and say, who do you trust who would be a really fabulous part of this platform? And so let uh, our initial members invite people who they trusted to join the community. And when you say growing this community. How did you manage this community? What was kind of like the first iteration? Was it on a specific platform that you used? Yeah, so it was mostly a spreadsheet and we did kind of one-on-one matching. So we would look down and be like, oh, Mike wants to go here. And uh, you know, his friend of a friend actually has a place there. And so let's pitch them. And then our members really wanted to kind of be able to browse like what homes were on the platform. And we ended up turning to Instagram and made a private Instagram account where we posted each home and we would post kind of availabilities and only accepted members could follow the account. And that served as our really hacky kind of browse page. You know, it started kind of as a bug because we were like, well, we don't have any engineers yet. Let's just use Instagram for now. Um, (laughs) And it ended up being a real feature because we learned a tremendous amount um, that ended up shaping the future of the product. And some of those key learnings were, one, uh, we were able to catch people uh, by being on Instagram um, and having that kind of distribution. Um, We were able to catch people in a moment in their customer journey before they had their heart set on a very specific location. We were able to inspire people And by posting, you know, hey, here's this incredible home in Miami with three bedrooms and two awesome workstations and a hot tub, and it's free during these dates. Do you want to go there? Uh, All you have to do is pay the cost of cleaning. Uh, A lot of people would DM us and be like, "Uh, yeah, I want to go there. That sounds great. (laughs) And so we found there's just tremendous flexibility that people have, and there's actually even a desire to not have to get really specific with their own travel queries and instead uh, be able to be inspired. So our members would kind of browse, you know, when they're waiting in line somewhere or between meetings, they would see images of beautiful homes and kind of daydream about travel. And that really dramatically increased our match rate. So with our first kind of, uh, I think around 180 homes uh, on the platform, we had already booked well over 100, 120 trips just between those 180 people staying at each other's 
homes. And we thought we were going to have a really hard cold start problem where we were going to need a couple thousand homes before we have enough liquidity on the platform to meet people's queries, their, their constraints. And what we found was that when you have great inventory and you have a browse or inspiration-based user experience as opposed to a search-based user experience, people were really excited to take you up on the suggestion and say, oh yeah, I was actually thinking about going to Jackson to go skiing, but if there's a really awesome home in Park City, like let's do that instead. That's really interesting. How did you then, what was like the next, after you kind of made that match, was the next post that person's place? Um, like how did it kind of make sense on the back end before, you know, maybe you had an algorithm per se? Yeah. So you're right that one of the really interesting things about this marketplace is that our supply equals our demand in a really unique way, which is very dissimilar from Uber or Airbnb or DoorDash or these other marketplaces that you commonly think of. And so every time a trip is booked, every time a unit of inventory is consumed, we're theoretically adding a unit of inventory because every member is both a guest and a host. It's a strict kind of give to get as opposed to pay to get economy. And so when Mike books a trip, you know, stays at Justine's place, now Mike's home is open and you can approve somebody to stay at your place while you're gone. And so we were able to create what we've called swap chains where one, where a bunch of trips are ended up being able to uh, be possible because that one first person uh, took that trip. And so the initial, it, it's its actually quite complex to, to map it out yourself. You realize how exponential these map, matching problems are. We looked at, there's actually some really interesting research around uh, liver transplant, like organ transplant, like matching uh, ecosystems where they do these kind of like swap chains almost. And we looked at, at, at how others have done this in, in different industries to try and make the best uh, matches and find ways to kind of shake out liquidity. But yeah, I don't know if you know, if you picture that meme with the guy from, I think it was Always Sunny, sort of like looking kind of crazy, like mapping things out over that uh, cork board, you know, like like Carrie Matheson in, in, in Homeland, like that was us, you know, we were like, if Justine goes here, then we could put this person in their house and we can put this person in their house. And uh, so it was a combination of making posts to kind of sell or broadcast availability and going to people and texting them. And that's when it became, it was really helpful to know our members and to have that concierge experience because when we know what their travel goals are, we can contact them when there's something that we know that they're going to like. So if we know that they have a bunch of friends in New York City and they're hoping to find some time to go catch up with them, when the New York City home opens, we can go uh, say, hey, I know you've been saying this, like I found this opportunity for you. And so we're now uh, productizing that and implementing some of our matching in a more algorithmic way. But it started as a completely human experience with human matchmakers. It's interesting because on its face, Kindred is a a cool user experience that it feels like you could do with a spreadsheet. And then you dig in, and there's some really interesting technical challenges. That's one of them. The supply and demand mapping um, and choosing which homes to accept. And then the second is that matching uh, problem that we talked about before with figuring out how do we provide recommendations uh, to people in a way that maximizes not only the chance of that recommendation being accepted, but also in a way that maximizes overall 
utilization of our inventory. So if we don't want to show the same Mexico City home to every single person who wants to go to Mexico City because then we're going to have 10 people you know, who, who all want to go to the same home. How can we spread demand over our supply, if that makes sense, in order to maximize overall utilization? And so from a recommendation algorithm perspective, it's quite complex. And it's something that you know I'm really, really glad to have Taz, uh, my co-founder, on board because really she was the product leader of the automated pricing algorithms at Opendoor during her time there. They went from a totally human process, 0% were, were fully automated to I think about 60, 65% of Opendoor offers were fully automated by the time uh, Taz left. And so she has had tremendous experience wrapping her hands around how do you take some like a complex human experience and algorithmically develop ways to actually do this better and more efficiently and more scalably? And we really want to kind of do the same thing here. But instead of with predicting what a home will sell for and how long it'll take to sell, we're trying to predict, you know, where people want to travel and how we can maximize overall utilization of heterogeneous inventory. It's so interesting. And first of all, I mean, that's, that's amazing that that was Taz's experience, my word. Speaking of investors, how did you end up approaching fundraising on the fundraising side? Yeah, so we were lucky to be able to know some wonderful folks who have worked with us before. So the, the CEOs of the companies that we've worked at before who know us and have worked with us and have been in the trenches and seen what we can do have, were, were fantastic advocates for us in, in the beginning with helping give us kind of a you know some first checks in. And that stamp of credibility was really helpful then for um, approaching other investors. And uh, so really we, we wanted to find investors who we really liked, frankly, like who we thought were smart and could be able to really help the company and people who we knew were high confidence and high conviction. One of the questions that we asked investors when we were chatting with them was, you don't need to tell me about the winners that you invested in. I want to hear about companies that that had moments when they were really struggling and what you did to help stick up for them or fight for them in their moment of need. So often we just, you know, talk about the the successes, but really we wanted to work with investors who would be there for us in a more difficult moment. Who are those people who are really high conviction, who show up in the difficult moments? And and we knew that this is a long-term journey and we wanted to have partners with us uh, who we were excited to be kind of standing with us through the highs and the lows. And so that ended up kind of informing uh, who, who we ended up going with to kind of join our bench. No, that's great. For the investors that might have passed, what was their biggest reason for passing? I think there were a couple people who didn't understand that there would be demand. The really analytical way to look at this business is to say, oh, you're going to have a ton of constraints because people are going to come and say, I want to go to Park City on May 23rd and I want to leave May 27th and I need these you know, features in the home. And so you're going to need a ton of inventory on the platform in order to be able to have the right, to have enough liquidity to make that marketplace model happen. And I think that, that that is a very logical way to approach this, but it ended up being wrong because, um, because of what we talked about, which is um, when the price point is so 
dramatically more affordable. And now with people's increased flexibility, people are actually really happy to alter their plans slightly or start with Kindred in order to stay at a Kindred home instead of renting a really expensive rental. And so people ended up fitting into our availability, you know, moving their dates that they, you know, I would have, you know, in a perfect world, I would have started on this day, but totally fine to start on that day because it's a difference of $3,000. So yeah, sure. And so I, I think that the liquidity a question and folks who kind of saw us more as a, as a search platform ended up having cynicism around it. And those who saw the vision around being a matchmaking platform or a discovery platform had that aha moment um, about uh, how we're going to really make this thing work. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Personally, I would say the book Undaunted Courage. Actually, this is funny. Both of my books probably have courage in the title. Undaunted Courage is a biography, really, a nonfiction book about Lewis and Clark (laughs) and their journey. I have to tell you, this book absolutely blew my mind. I am now, my friends will laugh when they hear this because my next chapter after starting this company is I'm going to write a screenplay and try and get some of this story to be on Netflix or something like that. Um, But I just think it's a really, really incredible story of of friendship and adventure and of uh, this kind of pioneering spirit that we had in the beginning of this country when so much of it was unknown. And it's just kind of an amazing story. I could spend 10 minutes talking about just this, but I would, I would highly recommend it. It's also a book that I had never, like nobody had heard of it before. Like a lot of people, you know, it's not like one of those books that's always on the top of the bestseller list. And so I like mentioning it because I want to increase readership. That's a book that was really inspiring and, and fun to read personally. And then I think professionally, I recently read a book called The Courage to be Disliked, and that was really meaningful to me. And I think I I know that a lot of people share this, but I think especially it might resonate with women. I've kind of worked my whole life to figure out how to be good at getting people to like me, you know, and and I think a lot of a lot of women probably share that. And I, I'm really good at managing other people's feelings and their egos and their, their stuff. And um, one of the things that is hard and different about being a CEO. Like definitionally you get the 49 to 51 kind of decisions. If it were easier, you know, other people would, would make it before it gets to you. So very often I'm, you know, making decisions where I'm choosing between two types of dysfunction, you know, like choosing like, like no, no answer is good. You're just choosing between trade-offs and, uh, and you need to own that answer and you need to move forward. And my empathy and and caring about what other people think is is part of my superpowers that, that I bring to the table because I care so damn much. But it can also be really hard and really overwhelming when you're constantly making decisions that that make somebody unhappy. So that book was a really helpful, was really powerful to me for helping me kind of develop a more kind of cogent like internal philosophy on how I can simultaneously care tremendously um, and also let some things go. My final question to you is maybe what's the best piece of advice that you've received? That's a good question. So this was advice from my older sister, who is my biggest cheerleader and best friend. It was her, she calls it her motherhood mantra. And she had a couple kids recently. And she would tell herself 
I can do hard things. And she started saying that to me when I started the company, Justine, you can do hard things. And it sounds trite, like it sounds kind of stupid or cheesy, but it actually was really profound for me um, because so often when you encounter something that's really difficult, I at least was kind of conditioned to try and figure out a way to like escape that difficulty. How can I make this easier? How can I, like, should I quit? You know, this is really, really hard. Do I stop? Like, how do I change this to make it not so hard? You sort of feel like I, I got to do something differently. And this kind of turned that on its head and said, yeah, this is really, really hard. And also, I'm going to just keep doing it. You know, like, full stop. Like, it's hard. And I can also do it. And that feeling of struggle is actually part of it. And it's part of the expectation. You know, you're going to struggle. So what? You can do it. You just don't stop. And so I think that that kind of framework, just sort of like, I've just been holding on to that as we kind of do this, this founder journey that is so exhilarating and so fulfilling, but can also be really, really challenging at some points. And when you feel that challenge saying, yeah, this is hard, period. So what? You know, <laughs> it's not like it's hard. So what am I going to do about it? It's just like, yeah, this is the, the bicep curl of the burn of growing. And you're just going to keep doing it anyways. So acknowledge that it's hard and keep going. Justine, thank you so much for your time. This is so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Justine on the show. Justine, thanks again for coming on. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.